Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today we are studying the third parak of Melachim Bet. To give the context, Yehoram is king of the north, Yehoshaphat is king of the south at this moment, and we learn that Yehoram is, uh, he's not as bad as his predecessors. He does that which is bad in the eyes of the Lord, but nonetheless, it tells us specifically that in some ways he is better than his predecessors. He even has some religious reform, putting away the pillars to Baal that his father had established. So he's bad, but he's not quite as bad as those who came before him. As we noted, really in the very first Pasuk of Malachim Bet, since the death of Ahav, the grip of Israel, specifically the northern kingdom, has been waning over the neighboring nations. The, the power of Israel in the region has been uh, lessening. And in our parak, we learn that Moab, led by King Mesha, rebels against Israel, refusing to serve as a vassal state, refusing to be a tributary to the nation. And as a result, King Yehoram gathers up the northern armies, preparing to go to war, and he goes to Yehoshaphat, the king of the south, and he asks him if he will join him uh, in battle. Yehoshaphat answers in the affirmative. In the past, you'll recall, Yehoshaphat was was burned in uh, allying himself uh, with with Ahav in their battle against Israel. Aram. But nonetheless, Yehoshaphat, I guess that he sees a new king, he sees a new opportunity, and so he is willing to partner with the north to fight against their mutual foe in Moab. And he says uh, quite powerfully that uh, in the same language that he had said to Ahav, my men are your men, my horses are your horses, I'm 100% uh, together with you in this effort. Interestingly, they don't just then go off and fight Moab, as we would expect, crossing over the Yardin, and uh, you know, crossing over the Yardin, of course, north of 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 the uh, of the Dead Sea, they go in a roundabout way. They go through Midbar Edom, through the Negev, south of the Dead Sea, and they do so for two apparent reasons. One is perhaps to surprise Moab uh, by attacking their southern border, uh, which was probably less prepared, less fortified uh, in terms of uh, expecting an attack from Israel, but also. As we learn, they pick up another fighting force along the way as Edom joins this now even more formidable coalition to go and fight against Moab. So now you have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, together with Edom advancing from the south to attack Moab. There's just one problem. For one reason or another, either it was a miscalculation or some unexpected change in the the topography, maybe an oasis that had dried up or something to that effect, the armies of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and Edom, find that they are, they've run out of water. And they go for an extended period of time in the Midbar with no water. And that prompts Yehoshaphat to suggest that they seek the counsel of a Navi. Obviously, having no water uh, is a major, major problem. It, it could have ended the battle there, could have ended the, this war effort there. And so Yehoshaphat says we should seek the counsel of a Navi. I'll note that last time when Ahav asked Yehoshaphat to go to battle, Yehoshaphat first asked to seek the counsel of a Navi. This time he went to war uh, and then only after hitting this kind of snag does he look to, to seek the counsel of a Navi. And I think the difference in Yehoshaphat's behavior could be explained by the nature of this, of this war effort versus the previous one. When Ahav wanted Yehoshaphat to go and, and fight against Aram, it was in a time of peace. But Aram had failed to honor its commitment to hand over a certain portion of land um, in the Transjordan to the northern kingdom. That was part of the the deal from the previous uh, battle where they sued for peace. 
They said we would give you a, a particular parcel of land, and they failed to do so. So going to war in that situation, uh, it was understandable, but it was more questionable because there was this was kind of a it was like a rishus. It was a battle that wasn't it wasn't for self defense. It wasn't absolutely necessary. No one was being threatened. They just it was to to seize. It was for a land grab. Um, not so in this case. Here Moab seems to be in, in rebelling. It seems to be threatening Israel in a much more significant way. There's there's perhaps real danger here. Perhaps we could consider this to be a defensive war even, and as such. When called upon, Yehoshaphat was ready to go to battle without seeking uh, the counsel of a prophet. Perhaps he did, but it wasn't. Not, it was not obvious. It was not retold in the text. Okay, so that's uh, m- maybe a way that we can understand the distinction in Yehoshaphat, who is of course a very righteous king, uh, in Yehoshaphat's behavior uh, between these two war efforts. Just a thought. In any event, they decide Yehoram, Yehoshaphat, and the king of Edom to go and seek the counsel of Elisha. When they arrive. You might think that Elisha would uh, take issue advising Edom, you know, with, especially uh, with the previous kind of very acrimonious relationship between the nation and Edom. But no, his issue uh, is actually uh, with um, with Yehoram. He turns bitingly to Yehoram and he says, "Why don't you go and turn to uh, the the gods, lowercase g, of your father and your mother, i.e., Achav and Izevel, i.e., Baal and Asherah? What are you doing here? Why are you seeking God, capital G? Why don't you go ask your gods? So he's extremely dismissive, and uh, he receives Yehoram very, very harshly. But despite the fact that he uh, uh, is, is, I mean, this is despite the fact that, as I've noted, Yehoram is kind of a reformer. He's 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 instituted positive change in the north. Obviously, Elisha still sees much room for improvement. He is still evil, wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And, uh, and, and Elisha is uh, displeased and, and, is, and is chastising Yehoram in this moment. But he says, out of deference to Yehoshaphat, I will speak uh, with you and I will beseech God on your behalf. And so he has people play music for him to get him to this prophetic state. And then he prophesies that uh, the kings should dig furrows in, in the valley where their armies are stationed. And miraculously, water will fill uh, all of those furrows. There will not be any rainfall. The water will simply uh, emerge and it will provide the necessary water for these armies. And not just that, but Hashem is going to deliver Moab into their hands and they are going to utterly uh, destroy Moab and their responsibility is to uh, do so, is to uh, thoroughly destroy absolutely everything they are to take on a scorched earth policy in their miraculous defeat of Moab. And sure enough, water miraculously comes and fills the furrows and provides for the armies. They have what to drink. And then the water miracle ends up leading directly to the military, uh, um, the, the, the military miracle and success because what happens is the water uh, catches the reflection of the sun as the sun rises and the Moabite armies that are apparently stationed nearby and, and keeping an eye on this massive buildup of soldiers, they see the water and because of the reflection of the sun, it takes on a kind of reddish hue and apparently it appears to be so red that it, that it, it almost looks like, it looks like blood to them. And they make the, uh, they, they come to the false conclusion, this is the Moabite onlookers, that uh, the water was indeed blood and that it was the result of, of infighting, of a civil war that had broken out among the armies of the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and Edom, 
It must be that they each killed each other and that this is literally a bloodbath. And so they saw an opportunity to go and plunder uh, the remains of what they anticipated to be a completely decimated force. So they run down, and, uh, and they, of course, completely miscalculated because all these armies were still standing, and not only were they standing, but they had what to drink, and so they, they were, they were re- revitalized. And this gives the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and the, and the um, Edomite armies the ability to completely take the Moabites by surprise, and completely uh, kills them uh, to the man. And uh, it kind of seems like everything goes to plan, follows from Elisha's words exactly, and the parak's going to end on a high, but then there is a significant curveball. Mesha sees that his army is falling, and he takes uh, a few desperate measures. The first desperate measure is to take 700 of his, of his armed men and to make one last desperate attempt at attacking the, uh, the Edomite flank. This is, it reminds me uh, of the Battle of the Bulge with the Nazi armies, Yemachshimam, badly losing World War II. They made one final desperate attempt to break through the Allied front lines. It was a doomed attempt and it failed. The same is true for uh, this attempt by Moab. They likewise failed. But then the last Pasuk is the, is the biggest curveball of all the, the most, and the most desperate uh, move of all. And that is that M- Mesha took his firstborn, who was the next in line for the throne, and he gave him as a sacrifice, which is, of course, abhorrent. Um, but then it, it, it seems to work in some sense because the wrath of, of God turns against Israel and they are kind of, um, they are, they're pushed back and they return to their land without having completed this uh, total victory. So this is a really kind of staggering and, and strange moment. On the face, it seems that Mesha engaged in human sacrifice, and it worked, and the nation got punished. But that, of course, makes little sense. We know, of course, that Hashem is, is bitterly opposed, and the, the Torah reflects a bitter opposition to human sacrifice. So how could that have worked? And so the Radak has a fascinating suggestion, and that is that Mesha, in this battle, this you know, battle of the bulge, failed, right, the, the, the first kind of desperate attempt, which was this attempt to break through the lines and attack Edom, it did fail, but it succeeded in one way, and that was that it captured Edom's prince. Right? The last Pasuk is vague in terms of who we're talking about. It could be that Mesha didn't kill his own next in line, the prince to take over Ed, um, Moab, but he, took, he, he captured the prince that was to take over, to be the king, was the heir apparent in Edom. And, uh, and that is who he killed, and he did it in a public way to kind of stun the opposition, to try to, to, to stun the, 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 the um, gathering armies that were coming to once and for all kill him and, and his last remaining men. And perhaps as a result of this last blow, this turns Edom against its coalition. It turns Edom against the northern and southern kingdoms, against uh, uh, Yisrael and Yehuda, uh, and it, it, it perhaps they felt that they weren't sufficiently sufficiently supported in fighting and, and and warding off Moab. As a result, they turn against, as I said, the northern and southern kingdoms. Now, I'll grant you that this reading is a bit of a stretch. It is certainly much more theologically palatable, but you, you have to do a lot of footwork here. 
But I do think that there is something else that recommends this approach, and that is that it really fits in very well thematically with the whole Perek. Because you'll consider the moment when the, that the three kings, right? We had Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, and Edom went to Elisha. So they really weren't... It would have been, it would have been understandable had Elisha refused to prophesy for them. But on the strength of their coalition, in this particular moment, on the strength of Yehoshaphat, Anchoring this coalition, Elisha was willing to to uh, to offer them this prophecy. So you, that that's the first kind of sense that we get that the coalition is perhaps stronger than the sum of its parts, and that uh, the strength of their effort will be in their ability to maintain unity. That becomes even uh, more clearly uh, kind of put to the fore when Moab assumes that the water was blood because the, the people of Moab assumed that this coalition must have been so tenuous, it must have fallen apart. There must have been infighting. And that was a miscalculation. And that turned out to be the great advantage of, the, of this coalition of, of Israel and, and, Edo, uh, and Edom, that indeed they had not um, failed to maintain unity. And that's how they're able to capitalize and ultimately uh, pretty much destroy Moab. So we see that throughout the Perak, the ability to maintain this coalition is really the essential ingredient. And so it's, I think, very appealing to then say that this failure at the very end of the Perak results in a collapse of this very delicate coalition. That's uh, a suggestion uh, which is uh, built on this uh, approach of the Radak, which is an alternative to an otherwise very challenging Pasuk. In any event, this last pasuk remains extremely difficult to understand. I uh, encourage you to take a look at it, and I uh, will leave it for you to contemplate. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz, and happy learning.